Hello and welcome to Farmerama. We're very grateful to all of you that support us and allow us to bring you these stories every month. Even the smallest contribution makes big difference to us. So if you'd like to become a supporter, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. This month, we begin learning what it takes to turn straw into gold, aka flax into linen, in the UK. We head to Uganda to hear how refugee and local communities are coming together and using permaculture techniques to build flourishing farms. And we hear from farmers in the mountains of Spain who are experimenting with many different regenerative approaches at scale in their dry, desertification-prone landscape. Rosie Bristow is based at Fantasy Organic Farm in Scotland and is currently studying an MSc in Fashion and Textile Management. As part of her studies, she began to investigate fibre farming and processing in the UK. This summer, she teamed up with George Young at Fobbing Farm in Essex to harvest his flax and is now using that harvest to prototype different processing equipment to turn the straw into gold. Rosie's a listener and she sent us in this recording, so thank you so much, Rosie, for doing that. Hi, Farmerama Radio. My name is Rosie Bristow, and I've got in touch to tell you all about my Farm to Fashion project. I'm running it in collaboration with George Young from Fobbing Farms, and this year he's grown a whole hectare of flax, which has been an amazing opportunity um, for me because I'm really interested in creating a soil-to-soil textile economy in the UK. And we just harvested it a couple of weeks ago, And yeah, the harvest was an amazing day. Um, So flax needs to be pulled out of the ground rather than mown because you want to uh, keep the roots, like the full plant gets used for fabric making. And there currently isn't any specialist machinery available in the UK to do pulling. So it has to be hand done. Um, I think we had about 35 people come to the harvest day and we pulled about an acre of flax were like about half a hectare um, and we're keeping the rest for seeds yes the reason I'm really excited about this is I love the idea of being able to create a small scale supply chain for fashion Um, so I was very inspired by the fiber shed movement and their whole ethos is the idea of creating a fabric economy that's like local it's good for the environment using natural fibers like not using pesticides not using synthetic dyes or synthetic materials creating stuff that's compostable creating stuff that's like nurturing for the local environment but also for the local community so it's creating jobs which are you know fun enjoyable jobs like artisanal weaving that kind of thing and farming so really like addressing a lot of the different issues that there is with the fashion industry at the moment which obviously has like a lot of horrendous things going on with degrading the environment with like waste problems and with workers rights and it's also quite similar in a lot of ways to like the slow food movement so I think the fashion industry is often like a few steps behind where farming of like and food is so for example taking on things to do with like organic materials with things being uh like carb like low carbon or vegan that kind of thing and I think hopefully the slow fashion movement which is like really picking up steam at the moment 
is going to like try and create this sort of like same local economy that we have at the moment with like local veg delivery boxes and CSAs and that kind of thing. And my project specifically is focusing on the processing equipment. So I was also really inspired by an episode of this podcast, The Miller is Missing, where you look at how there's a lot of interest in heritage wheat farming and there's a lot of interest from small scale bakers. But there was a sort of bottleneck of nobody was milling the raw grains into flour for the bakers to use. And I think there's a really relatable problem in fibre farming in that there are a lot of farmers who are interested into diversifying into fibre growing, especially farmers who might currently grow linseed, which is very similar to flax and can be used as like a break crop for wheat. And from the fashion side of things, and um, not just fashion, but also interior design, there's a lot of excitement about being able to use a product which is UK made, which is, yeah, compostable, low carbon, it's vegan. There's all these great reasons why you might want to use um, like a UK grown like fibre crop. But there's no way to currently process uh, flax in the UK. And if it was then sent overseas to several different places to like a scutching mill in Belgium, say, and then to be spun in either like Eastern Europe or China, where most of the spinning takes place, that would kind of negate a lot of the reasons why you'd want to do it in the first place, because it would no longer be like a small local thing and it wouldn't have such a like low carbon impact. So I'm currently collaborating with uh, Simon and Anne from Flaxland and um, with some yeah engineering students, Soma and with some carpenters from Fantasy Farm, where I'm based, and we're actually creating our own sort of small to medium-scale processing equipment, um, which is really exciting. So what I'm really hoping is I can keep you guys updated on this project and all the different steps. So, um, yeah, today I've just got a few interviews from the harvest, and then in the future there's retting, rippling, scutching, breaking, heckling, like all these different processes it goes through on its way to becoming clothes. Um, And yeah, I'll keep you updated on how we get on. It's just really interesting, that connection between our clothes and stuff that we grow. And I've just been getting involved in small scale organic growing and all of the, just being like mind blown by all the amazing things that you can actually grow like really locally and fairly easily but trying to make that into a model that is like accessible for all. For me it's also just about the community, people coming together with like this huge fast um, amount of interest like I've got an engineering background I do a lot of food stuff there's another engineer here you know there's a way we could help with our engineering skills Um, there's lots of people who are involved in textiles and fabric who know how to cut, who know how to dye and weave. It's like a whole bringing together of people and then, yeah, just a more ecological way to farm. I feel like we have this huge disconnect between how much it takes in terms of, like, energy and input and land to produce something that we then consume very quickly. And it just made me think, you know, how much more we value, like, our clothes and uh, if we knew, you know, you need two, what is it, so two square metres of this to make one tea towel. And I think if it was optimum conditions, it would be one square metre to make a tea towel. 
It's been such a nice day of meeting people all with this shared interest, but in very different ways. So there's weavers and spinners and people interested in textiles, but then also people interested in farming and just having a day out. And it's just this amazing assortment of people. I'm loving it. Yisei Uganda promote practical regenerative farming activities for smallholder farmers, specializing in areas that are receiving large numbers of refugees into the country. Uganda has a population of around 1.4 million refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, Rwanda, and many more East African countries. We spoke to the organization's founder, Noah Sempija. Now, the goal of our intervention is uh, threefold. One, we want to promote food security. Uh, uh, two, we want to regenerate the biodiversity and achieve climate change adaptation, and as well as um, uh, we want to improve incomes for smallholder farmers in Uganda. Now, um, we carry out this uh, through a number of community-led uh, activities. Uh, these include uh, practical farmer trainings in permaculture, and regenerative farming, uh, trainings in water harvesting. Uh, we have uh, invented a mobile drip irrigation kit, uh, which helps farmers to, you know, to irrigate. But you also introduce uh, production of uh, organic fertilizers for smallholder farmers, and also make sure that we organize them and mobilize them through groups through which they can learn. These refugees are settled into uh, what we call refugee settlements, and the government is lenient enough to give them small pieces of land from which they could carry out uh, small-scale farming so that they can uh, feed their households. Now, uh, because these pieces of land they are given are small and they do uh, intensive farming, they like, I mean, they farm on this land for so many years, so the land loses nutrients. And this is how we come in with our regenerative farming. We want to engage refugees to be able to, pro to use their small pieces of land sustainably, to be able to get enough food for their households and also an, an income through selling extra food. So what we do, we introduce uh, permaculture designs where we help refugees set up uh, kitchen gardens, vegetable gardens, food forests, and also uh, introduce them to the um, to tree planting, which is key because normally when refugees settle into a place, the first thing they do is to cut trees for firewood, for charcoal, and also for selling so that they can survive. So we try as much as possible to regenerate all these and and um, help them to, you know, live in a really nice environment where they have enough food, where they have enough income, and where they are happy. Most refugees that we have in Uganda are in uh, what we call protracted refugee situation. So they have been in Uganda for over 10 years. We try as much as possible to, uh, to to look at this as a way of creating their resilience and making sure that they are self-reliant while they're in the refugee settlements. For the food forest, for example, we basically try as much as possible to promote uh, fast-growing foods like purples, sugar canes. So even if someone uh, has stayed in a place for three years, they can always harvest purples and sugar canes. But the interesting bit is while a few refugees will repatriate, 
more others are coming. So they will still benefit from the trees and the food that we have uh, planted. So it's basically a continuous process where sometimes we have a few uh, that will say, okay, we are going back to our home countries, it's now safe. But then we are having more that are coming who are then given that land and we start from there and continue helping them. And of course we do this because normally the food that is provided to them by the World Food Program and UNHCR is not always enough. It's not nutritious enough for them to be able to live like happier lives and to, you know, to help their children feed well. So all what we do is to supplement the efforts by those organizations and make sure that, um, yeah, there is enough food and the environment is conserved. Whether they, are, they will be there or not, we want to make sure that the trees are there, the birds are happy, and the people that will stay in those areas to, in, in the time to come will find the land fertile and uh, safe for them to stay. When we started uh, implementing our uh, activities, especially the kitchen gardens, we learned that uh, farmer, uh, you know, the area where we are working is really affected by climate change. We normally have uh, a, um, long periods of dry spells that would run for up to three, four, up to six months. And so farmers are not able to produce or to maintain their kitchen gardens and be able to get food from them. So what we did was to innovate um, or invent a small drip irrigation kit. We make this kit using uh, locally available materials the beauty of this system and why we call it mobile is because it's small, it can irrigate uh, an area of 50 by 100 feet, 50 feet by 100. And if a farmer has a, a land or a piece of land which is bigger than that or a garden which is bigger than that, then they can move it from one side of the garden to another side of the garden. So um, we've been able to um, uh, sell out over 365 drip irrigation kits, smallholder farmers, and these have really found them really helpful because they have been able to produce their vegetables throughout the year, throughout the season, without having to worry of uh, whether it has rained or not. And they are having this sustainable uh, income coming to their households, but also they have uh, sustainable access to food. What our uh, organization is doing in addition to the mobile drip irrigation kit already is to promote uh, tree planting to make sure that um, there are many more trees that are planted. And we are basically planting the back cloth tree because it's fast growing, but farmers can also use it for, you know, making, um, getting fuel or firewood for cooking like easily. And it's, it also, it's also used to make uh, clothes in Uganda, so it's really a mouth-purpose kind of tree. Uh, and other things we are doing is to create awareness about climate change, educating uh, farmers about the effects of, uh, you know, uh, dig, um, uh, poor farming methods, using chemicals and things like that, so that they they, they are they are able to conserve the biodiversity and also reduce on. Um, uh, uh, climate change. But also we are doing things such as uh, promoting uh, organic farming. We have trained our farmers to make organic fertilizers for their, uh, I mean that they can use in their gardens and reduce the usage of uh, of chemicals. So all these interventions we are doing is try to make sure that we reduce the effects of climate change and we make farmers uh, climate uh, being able to adapt to climate change as and when it does happen. 
One beautiful thing is that our systems that we are promoting are actually the systems that our grandparents were using, but probably unknowingly, I would say. And I think uh, these have been dropped by the so-called modern farmers of today who want to use uh, chemicals, GMO seeds, and, and things like that. So one of the things that we're actually promoting is um, uh, seed bulking or keeping seeds for the planting for the next season. Now, instead of buying GMO seeds, we always advise farmers that, you know what, you can keep your seeds and you'll be able to plant them in the next season as well as you've sorted them very well, you've stored them really well, you can use them. And we are also promoting a lot, a lot of uh, local knowledge. Uh, we, are, we have embarked on a process of um, engaging with elder people in our communities to give us those key uh, items or those key skills or tips that we are using in farming, for example, how are they, are control- how are they controlling pests and diseases uh, without having to buy chemicals, how are they uh, keeping their soils fertile. So we are documenting all this to make sure that we can keep all this information and pass it on to the rest of the farmers in the community. We set up a demonstration garden near a hunt hill. And when we did mulch, uh, the, 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 uh, the termites ate all the mulch that we had put in the garden. And one of the farmers we had in the group advised us, uh, of course, we are looking at ways of uh, you know, uh, sending out the termite without actually killing it. And the farmers advised us that we can use uh, the pig's intestines. So it advised us to go to uh, a butcher where they'd make pork and get the intestines and put them in the termite hill. And when we did it, it actually worked. So the termite left. We didn't see any termites die, but it left the place and it migrated to another area. So these are some of the tips that we are now introducing to our farmers. That you know what? Instead of uh, termites are very key in our soil. So instead of using chemicals to kill them, can you just use this method uh, from what our grandparents used and then they just move away and then you'll remain happy. So these are some of the things that we are promoting. Our work is built around empowering the women and the young people who we think have always been left out of the mainstream programs implemented by governments, by bigger organizations. So we want to make sure that we are empowering this. And we have learned that over time, when you give women and young people the opportunity to share the experiences, to practically participate in uh, um, actions that that are concerned that are about their issues or address their issues, you'll be successful and they'll be happy. So one of the things we have seen is some of the women that we have worked with have ended up taking on leadership roles in the community, uh, like they have gotten out of support from their husbands. They say we are now more respected because we can also contribute towards the household income. And these are some of the things that we've really found really very, very interesting. Yeah, and of course, lastly, the importance of uh, networking and having partnerships. So of course, the more we network, the more we you know we, we share our stories, is the more we get uh, opportunities to work with so many new people. So I hope the stories that we are shared here will be listened to by so many people, and we look forward to you know sharing more and answering any further questions that the listeners would have. Yeah. La Junquera is a 1,000 hectare organic farm high up in the Spanish Altiplano. It's run by Alfonso Chico Guzman and Yannick Schoenhoven. It's an incredibly vast dry landscape with under 300 millimeters of rain a year. And La Junquera is a beautiful, once bustling farm village that they're slowly bringing back to life. 
We'll hear from them a few times over the next few months because their farming landscape extends far beyond the farm gate. They're a great example of the power of collective action across many farms and organizations, all working with the same aim, to build more regenerative farming landscapes and supply networks. One of those initiatives is the Regeneration Academy. They offer a number of different educational opportunities from a one-week crash course on Regen Ag um, to summer camps for kids learning about the land. One of the courses they offer is the Regeneration Academy Research Program. And this has become a key part of the farm's ecosystem as it's a vital way that they build knowledge about different activities on the farm. They've teamed up with universities to host students and provide a space for practical research projects that support the student, but also they learn about different aspects of the farm at the same time. We have we've had kind of a funny student, well, he, like, funny is not the right word, but he was actually a marine biologist studying for marine biology. Uh, and he came here to the desert. Uh, so we told him, like, you do know that there's very little water here, right? And he was like, yeah, no, I love it. And, uh, and, I, and we talked and we talked and we found this topic about uh, the ponds that we have that have a lot of uh, animals and they attract a lot of animals. And um, you can say a lot about which animals come if your ponds and the, your water is uh, healthy. So he researched that and uh, he found out all these things about which ponds were more healthy than others and which attracted the kind of animals and pollinators that we also like to attract and which ones did not yet have that function. He also looked over the years, so young ponds versus old ponds, uh, to see how this might develop in the future. And that was a very interesting research because it gave us a lot of insights also on how like adult ponds uh, work um, and how also that the young ponds within a year can already have many of the functions of, of these older ponds as well. So that's just an example of a research that happened here that was very nice and useful. You know, so often a pond is just a pot, like we don't consider it um, that much as a like ecosystem or a web and a tool for the whole farm. Yeah, but indeed, like like we, for example, didn't know that the libellulas, or dragonflies, dragonflies are apparently, they need clean water. So they don't go to like um, polluted water. So when you see dragonflies, that's a good sign. Ah, that was very nice insight because it's also something you can share with uh, people around. Um, and it's some like an easy little tool to, to, to measure the health of a pond. Just thinking about him individually, like, did it change his kind of career path? Or do you think he became, or yeah, what, what effect did it have on him, do you think? So he got more interested in farming, for sure. <laughs> um, and he also got to see how his studies, even though it's very marine-based, can also connect to, to this type of environment. So indeed, like, I think many times with studies, you... You have a certain topic and you think that's the only thing that you, then you know about. But uh, many times it's also a way of thinking, a way of seeing stuff. And that is what you will use in later life and not necessarily all the theory that you've read. At La Junquera, they farm heritage grains. They have some cows, sheep, they have vegetable gardens, aromatics, and they have a sizable amount of rain-fed almonds and pistachios. 
When Alfonso returned to the family farm, he had many ideas about how he was going to build soil health and farm no-till, rain-fed almonds. He'd read all the books, and he was going to show the locals how it could be done. However, it hasn't quite worked out like that. The, the yields, it's not that they dropped a bit, it's basically they disappeared, and even uh, a per, quite a yeah, high percentage of the trees died as well. And we've tried in many different farms, uh, also many different years of different ages of trees. Indeed, we've seen that when the trees are bigger and older, they are a lot more resilient to, to these things. But especially when they are small, then that's quite tough for them. We even have in, the, in this farm a plot of four hectares, that is where the ecosystem restoration camp is established, with uh, totally no-tilled trees. And we are also monitoring different practices. So we have a bit of all the examples to compare. We've been trying to find a middle ground between completely no tilling to tilling eight times a year. That is the case of many farmers here, that there is, there is a big way to improve. And there is, you know, you don't have to go to any of those extremes. And after doing many experiments, now at least us in this farm, we've been able to find a system that we leave a ground cover during the, the autumn and the winter months of the year that is quite cold and is where most of rain precipitation happens and the soil has more humidity. In some cases, it's a seeded ground cover with legumes and grains and in other cases, it's spontaneous. Most of it is spontaneous because well, it's ongoing, this... Uh, these experiments, but now we've seen that the seeded one with legumes is uh, the one that works generally the best. I personally don't think that it's just the wheat competition, because in if you tilled for the first time, let's say in um, April, beginning of April, uh, then you are, are killing the, the that weeds, that the grasses that are growing there. Uh, but then if you till in August, there's already no vegetation, but you do see uh, a big difference if you do that tilling or not uh, in August. For me, it was a huge change because it or after a rain and, and there was no vegetation. So that improvement didn't happen because of the vegetation. And so I think that is generally because of breaking the capillarity between the, um, the layers of soil that because of your, your tilling, then you're getting basically very dry that first 10 centimeters, but you're breaking that connection in the lower layer of the soil, and then the humidity cannot get out, and then uh, the tree uses that humidity. Also, there's some theories of, uh, about the, you know, the oxygen, or the, that then the, the organic matter becomes available faster, or that it uh, decomposed uh, faster. I don't know. I've, I've heard all types of theories. I don't know the technical details, but it seems that uh, most of it is because of the water and the water is more water competition. Yeah, we've seen a gigantic difference between uh, doing those three tillings to doing one or doing none. It's not a small difference, it's really, really big. Then you have to always find the balance. Some people say that there is no difference between three attempts and eight times for the trees, but that, uh, that is not better, but that is actually really bad for the soil to till that many times. Uh, so for the soil, it's quite clear that it's bad to till eight times. But uh, what I've seen is that, unfortunately, the trees that are tilled eight times, indeed, in the short term, they do much better and they grow a lot faster. <laughs> I think the balance we found so fast so far is this one of tilling maximum three times 
and leaving those lines of vegetation and not tilling autumn and winter and adding compost. They've also used swales and ponds across the farm to build biodiversity, prevent soil erosion and retain water in the soil for longer periods. Alfonso gives us some of the details of how that works. Uh, so the swales, we've been doing them for the last five years already. Now most of the ones we do, or all the ones we've been doing later, are quite wide. We do it with a tractor, with a blade that is a polydozer. So we first mark it with, um, with some sticks and a laser. And then the tractor goes behind. And in one day you can do quite a good amount of uh, kilometers. So it's, it's much, a much more efficient way of doing some uh, earthworks and controlling erosion than, for example, a terrace that you have to move a lot more soil than one of these swales. They also need maintenance, the swales, but yeah, I, I like them more. And the swales we are making now are about five meters wide and about, yeah, maybe 70 centimeters, 60 centimeters deep on the, yeah, maybe even a bit more. And then we are making them, all of them, except uh, the one we just made in the, in the vineyard, all the rest are in grain fields, in parts that are especially steep and that uh, had a lot of erosion. And we've been making these swales, we have now about 15 kilometers, something like that, maybe a bit more. And uh, we also combine them with little dams on the weak points of those swales where a lot of water and runoff gets concentrated. So they don't silt up too, too fast. And we've also been planting them for the last uh, few years with trees on the, on the lower part of the swale and also bushes and aromatic plants. Uh, most of it is just uh, natural species for biodiversity. And uh, we've also combined some with almonds and with olive trees. And these swales, I really like them because they, they, they do a lot of services at the same time. One is the most obvious, the erosion control, but also you have the, yeah, the humidity that they create around them is higher than in the, um, a lot more than in the rest. So then that combined with the sediments that they, that they keep uh, there, it year over year it becomes a uh, yeah more fertile and more humid line of uh, soil. So those trees at the beginning they suffer a bit because yeah it's so dry and then they, they don't get immediately all those benefits in the first year because it takes a few years to build up. But uh, I do think they're going to do really well in the future. There are going to be some of the uh, yeah happier or be yeah, better developed vegetation. And uh, then also they are really good corridors for wildlife because the, yeah, after you harvest the grains, for example, it looks a bit barren, like gigantic fields. So these corridors are really useful uh, for the wildlife to, to nest some of the birds, but also to cross all the wild boars, the foxes, the rabbits, the, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of it. And yeah, then it's also that a bit of a safe place for a lot of the species that, for example, if one year we put barley in that plot, but then these swales still have a lot of seeds that we've been planting of uh, very tall varieties of uh, wheat or rye. And then, yeah, it's, it's a bit bushy and uh, good for especially partridges that we see them uh, nesting in these swales. And also after we harvest them, they still have that there. 
We've been building ponds in the last also five or six years since we started with the first one. We have about 70-something or maybe 80-something already. I, I lost a bit track of them. Some are quite small and they are these little dams that help a bit uh, the weak parts of the swales. But others are quite big that are almost one hectare of surface that they can hold uh, many thousand cubic meters of water. They are all great. I like them all. <laughs> the little ones, the bigger ones. Uh, some of them hold uh, water all year round. Uh, some of them just only for a few days after strong rain events. Uh, but they all are quite useful for biodiversity. Mm -hmm. Some are these little hot spots with vegetation and a bit more humid that for the summer for a lot of these birds or rabbits that are breeding they have a, um, yeah, a bit of a different vegetation there and a bit of coverage and um, yeah the, the bigger ones and the ones that have water all year round those are little oases in this very arid place and then you see that they're, they're really full of life in the summer and full of tracks and full of insects animals everything and then Thanks to a student that did some research, we found out that even a lot of the insects that breed in the pond are also pollinators that are helping us with the almond production, that we didn't even think about it, but apparently it's happening as well. And yeah, the ponds, I think they are really helping a lot with the biodiversity. It's not just providing water, but it's, it's water, it's uh, the plants around, it's um, shelter for breeding, as yeah, little different habitats. I was really amazed by the difference between the almonds that were tilled like between one and three times in a year and then the no-till almonds. It was immediately visible. The no-till almonds were really struggling. They were kind of much weaker, thinner trunks. Um, and they were right next to each other, these almonds. I have to admit that I was quite shocked when I saw all the bare soil um, and by, you know, the tilling of the top 10 centimeters of soil between these nut trees. That bare earth goes against everything I've learned. And when I touched the soil on the surface, it was brittle and dust-like. Although, you know, going down a few centimeters, there was much more moisture in better structured soil. Obviously that topsoil is still very fragile and could easily blow away in summer windstorms. But in farming, there are always compromises. And as Alfonso said, they are building carbon in the soil using their cover cropping in part of the year. It appears the soil isn't degrading as a whole. So maybe for the early years of growing rain-fed almonds in drier areas, it's the top 10 centimeters of soil needs to become lifeless. I have actually seen similar patterns in like when establishing vines, they've ha had similar findings. Or maybe there's something else we don't quite understand in this situation. For me, this experience was a good reminder that there are no dogmas in regenerative approaches to farming. There's just principles and balancing priorities. This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Abby Rose, Joe Barrett, and Olivia Oldham. A big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Katie Revel, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Dora Taylor. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo.